I'm Cliff, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Cliff. Isn't this fun, Mike? <laughs> I was going to say, read it out loud, Mike. <laughs> I noticed they gave everybody juice except the page turner. Did you notice? That's all on the wrist. I was over there behind the piano, just turning those pages. She said, now, now. What, what? Uh, <laughs> uh, Pat uh, really felt... Uh, very badly tonight about her accompaniment. Uh, she had never accompanied a sober person before. <laughs> you know, they, they sing on the beat and everything. You can't. <laughs> tough, tough. Uh, also, a comment here when this arrived, the flyer arrived in the mail, I thought it was kind of interesting that the Al Anon would read it. She said, That's an interesting uh, uh, motif they had. It's uh, as we sow, so shall we weep. I thought that was significant. I don't know. I always like it when we can come someplace together uh, and I can introduce her as my Al-Anon. <laughs> uh, kind of my way of getting even. <laughs> you know, they introduce us. Have you met my alcoholic? <laughs> sit up, boy. Sit up. Sit up. <laughs> I don't know which paw to put out first, you know. Somebody commented on some other group today. I, my buddy Alois says, uh, they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. You know? uh, I love Al-Anon. Just love it. Certainly love mine. Yours, too, if you give me half a chance. <laughs> no, I do. I really love them. I, I have no way ever in God's earth ever of understanding one. Uh, but then they don't understand us either, so it's all even. Uh, but I love them anyway. I, first place, I don't understand anybody who drinks like that. Uh, you know, order of margaritas you could soak your feet in, you know, and uh, have three sips and say, well, let's eat. <laughs> that never fails it. You know. I'll tell you, last Christmas, this one. Uh, she went down to the liquor store to get her the hot toddy stuff, uh, rum and brandy, some crap like that. You know, uh, she likes to make those hot ones. You know, I only drank that stuff once. That batter sticks in your nose when you throw up. I just. <laughs> but they like it. You know, social drinkers like that stuff. I used to make it for them. I used to go out and make them. You know, one for them, one for me, one for them. <laughs> but. Uh, she went all the way down to the liquor store and bought this pint, you know, it would last the Christmas season. Uh, and uh, she brought it home and she opens the refrigerator. No, she opened the closet. She kept up in this closet, up above the broom closet. And, and she went, oh, <laughs> the bottle was there from last year. <laughs> she said, I forgot. <laughs> Do you ever forget where a bottle was? <laughs> suckers. I'm in the closet, Cliff. <laughs> in here. The best one ever was a couple of years ago. I drove, uh, Pat was speaking somewhere up in Los Angeles. It's about 100 miles from where we live. And uh, these other four Al-Anons and she, I drove them all to L.A. You can imagine that experience by yourself. Uh, we stopped for dinner. And this waiter comes over to the table and said, Would you like a cocktail before dinner? You should have seen that. It was decision time. One... Do you want one? Well, I don't care. If you'll have one, I'll have one. Well, I don't really know. Do you, do you want one? Did you ever have to make a decision? <laughs> you know, that guy throws throw his towel over the arm. I'd say, yeah, two right here. Let's go. You know. <laughs> and it went on and on. This one gal says to the, uh, to the waiter, I don't remember what she said exactly, but it sounded to me like, she said, uh, uh, do you have kumquat daiquiris? I said, no, we don't have any of those. She says, well, never mind. I didn't, I didn't take that lying down. You know, I said, Sarah, will you look behind the goddamn bar? I said, there's 500 bottles back there. What the hell? And they all went. Remember that when you used to get up in the morning? You had a few too many last night, didn't you? I used to say, no, you had a few too few. That's what's the matter. <laughs> but I do, I love them. Now, I'm not like them. Uh, and I assume many of you in this room are not either. I love to drink. I just love every part of drinking. 
Almost. <laughs> I've heard idiots get up to this podium. I heard one not two weeks ago. This girl got up and said, I never really cared for the taste of alcohol. And I just almost come right over the podium. <laughs> you don't, huh? Because <laughs> I love the taste of alcohol. I just love it. I love all kinds of tastes of alcohol. I like sour mash, bourbon whiskey the best. I love, my dad showed me how you drink bourbon whiskey when I was just a kid. I think my father was an alcoholic. Uh, he sure as hell drank a lot. <laughs> my mother died of alcoholism when she was 44 years old. Uh, uh, my sister, who died just a week or so ago, uh, died of cancer. But uh, she was, I believe, an alcoholic, and I urged her for years to go to meetings. But she was a quiet drunk, so she wouldn't go. And both her sons are on the program. You know, My Uncle Jack died of alcoholism. It's kind of a dominant gene in my family, you know. Uh, and I was an Irish Catholic family. Oh, really? Yes. Without us, you'd have these meetings in phone booths. <laughs> Anyway, my old man showed me how to drink sour mash bourbon whiskey, and uh, if any of you are planning a slip, I'd like to recommend this to you. You just get a little water and a big double shot of sour mash bourbon, Yellowstone, or I.W. Harper, Jack Daniels, any will do, and you just take that big shot and you say, boom, and just let it burn its way down, that wonderful thing. Then you just rinse your mouth, a little bit of water. <laughs> then you swallow the water. Then comes the best part. You breathe out through your nose. I can taste that right now. <laughs> oh, I used to love that. I, when I at home, I used to go into just ecstasy about that. One night we lost three newcomers. You know, I was in the middle of that, and they all said, "Oh, the hell with this!" And we, we never saw them again. You know? So I kind of hold back on that now. But I think you got the general idea, and I, I love the way you know after seven or eight or nine of them or five or six Manhattans, or seven or eight martinis, or whatever the number was. I don't know what it was like for you. I only have my story. Uh, it's the only story I have, and it was a very expensive and painful one to get, and I ain't going to get a new one for you. you know? uh, but in my case, uh, after I'd been about 40 minutes in so many drinks, there was, a, there was about 15 minutes or, uh, at the beginning, and toward the end it was about seven or eight minutes. Uh, there was about seven or eight minutes in my drinking where I was all right, where I felt like somebody, uh, where I wasn't afraid and I wasn't angry and I wasn't uh, anxious, just kind of, a lot of times right after that, it all went downhill, you know, but there was at least eight minutes out of a 24-hour day where Cliff was okay. And that eight minutes damn near killed me. You know? and I'll never forget that. And I, when I drank, I had fun. Now, you heard Pat. She said fun this morning. See, Alanons don't have fun. Alanons have fun. <laughs> oh, yes, we had lots of fun last night. But you know what I mean. Fun. <laughs> like getting the crap beat out of you and going to jail. You know? Fun. Finding your car in the bottom of a ravine in the morning, you know, with you in it. Fun. Oh, yeah, I love to sing and I love to dance and I love to fight and I love to have fun. And uh, that's what I did. Lots and lots and lots and lots. The I'll tell you about the first two times I drank and we can get on with this dreary thing, okay? First time I drank, I was 15 years old. Uh, I was raised in this Irish Catholic family, as I said, and my father was a real man. My father had been one time the leading contender for the middleweight championship of the world. His brother, Jack, was just as tough as my old man, only he was huge. And his hobby was cleaning out saloons. He would just go in and wipe out a saloon a night. He was a legend around Bakersfield and Taft where I was raised. When I was 15 years old, I, I was 4 foot 11 and I weighed 89 pounds. 11 pounds of that was pimples. And I had, a, I had a real severe back problem. I had a big yellow streak down the middle of it. And I did not fit in this family. 
You know, I just never, I always felt alienated, and a few people probably identify with that. There was a guy in L.A. said, when he was a kid, he always thought a spaceship was going to land, and a door would open, and they'd say, come on, Bill, we're going home. <laughs> always identified with Bill. That's how I felt. But anyway, I had always hated drinking. You know, when you're raised in an alcoholic family, you always raised saying, God, I'll never be like them. You know, the fists against the flesh and the screaming and the yelling and all those horrible scenes that I was raised with, and I thought I'll never be like them. And so why I ended up behind this lunch stand when I was 15 years old, getting ready to go to this high school dance, why we had a half a pint of that World War II, 10 high, that elixir of the gods, if you recall, and we had two quarts of party pack and this other little weenie and I, we gagged that half a pint down. We got a quarter of a pint apiece. And I don't know what happened to Jack. I've never seen him in a meeting. But I know what happened to me. You know, that booze went down there and said... Like Clancy said, said, boom. And the pimples just went, <laughs> And I grew a lot. And I went to that high school dance, and I had the best time I ever had in my whole life. There were only two girls in the schools I could dance with because I was so little. You know, four foot eleven, there aren't that many girls. But that night I danced with all of them. I just grabbed and said, come on, baby, let's go. And out of the floor I went. I didn't care where my face was. I just grabbed them and away I went. Oh. And I, uh, I did a lot of that bumping that. I don't know if any of you guys identify that. But I was a macho drinker. That's the only reason. One of the main reasons I drank was to be a real man. And I chased. I never was, but I always wanted to be. Uh, and... Uh, I did a lot of that, hey, watch where, you know, I blew several guys' knees that night, you know, watch out. <laughs> and I just had a wonderful time. So a couple of weeks later, I thought, if, you know, if a quarter of a pint of 10 high will do it, a fifth of port wine ought to do it better. And it did. And I had a blackout. Now, I don't know what kind of drinker you were, you know. I never had a good blackout in my whole life. You know, I never woke up in the morning and found I'd helped the little sisters of the poor all night or something like that, you know. <laughs> that black idol was like all my black shots. They tell me, <laughs> remember that? Much of my life is hearsay from now on, you know. <laughs> God, I spent years and years saying, oh, I'm sorry, I did? Oh, no. And uh, they tell me that uh, we were out at this party out by a river and uh, they, I tried to whip every guy there and they all beat hell out of me and I tried a couple of the smaller girls and... Uh, <laughs> They would be too. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning in jail, all beaten up and bloody. And uh, if anybody dozed off, that's my drunk log, see? Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of times I drank and had fun. And lots and lots and lots of other times I drank and had those damn blackouts, you know, and got in all that trouble and got beaten up. Uh, that was just a curse with my drinking. I, uh, as I say, I always wanted to be tough and I never could make it. See, if I could get enough booze in me, I could be brave. Now, I always thought brave and tough were synonyms. <laughs> no. Uh, see, about the time I got enough juice to be brave, I would lose my muscle coordination. <laughs> and I became one of the great beating takers of all time. Oh, I would just take these legendary beatings. And I was proud of them. <laughs> And I had trouble with the second step when I got here, you know. I would take a beating and be proud of it for a month. You know, that was good to be macho for a month. Uh, I remember one time I went, uh, a bunch of us from Bakersfield went down to Long Beach to have fun one night. And uh, there were five of us. And I woke up in this hotel in the morning and I thought I was blind. Uh, I had bled on this pillow all night and it dried. So when I got up, the pillow came with me, see. <laughs> And I'm and this other guy and I start throwing water on this pillow and finally got it wet enough and, you know, we got it off my face. I looked in the mirror in this hotel room. I said, put the pillow back. Put it. I'll never forget these guys were with me. They said, you were magnificent, Cliff. You were magnificent. You got up 19 times. <laughs> and that's the kind of friends I had my whole life. It's the kind of friend I was, too. You know, if you were getting, I'd say, go get him, Jack. You know. <laughs> but that's the way I lived my whole life. And then I met this uh, lovely lady in college. And uh, she'd had this alcoholic mother. Some of you heard her this morning. And she thought she could cure alcoholism. And uh, so we entered this 20-year suicide pact together. <laughs> and uh, 
we had this dual problem she referred to this morning. We had alcoholism and Catholicism. <laughs> the great loser of Vatican roulette of all time. We had a kid every nine months and 20 minutes. Uh, seems like every time I come out of a blackout. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> and as Pat said, you know, I spent a lot of years doing a lot of things, and then finally I became a school teacher. Can you imagine a drinker like me becoming a school teacher? And uh, I taught for a few years up in the San Joaquin Valley, and then we moved to Oceanside, where we still reside. Now, Oceanside's about 30 miles above San Diego, right on the Pacific coast. That's why it's called Oceanside. I imagine you doped that out already. Uh, <laughs> And we, uh, and I got a job teaching in a high school there at Oceanside High, and, uh, and it was a pretty successful school teacher, if that's not a dichotomy, <laughs> uh, or a contradiction, I suppose I should have said. Uh, but as the years went on, uh, my drinking, uh, it'll probably amaze you to know, my drinking got worse. Uh, I became very paranoid about those blackouts. I was so afraid of those blackouts, you know, because... When you, when you do the things I do in blackouts, they have a tendency to call you up to Sacramento, the state capital, and ask for your teaching license back. And so I became just absolutely paranoid about afraid of having them. And so I was able to cut them down. But I became more and more and more dependent upon alcohol. And that's a part of my drinking I always like to remember, is that having to drink every day, day in, day out, day in, day out. And as the drinking got worse, of course, we all got crazier. I was the head nut, but... Everybody in that family was severely affected by the disease of alcoholism. Uh, God knows she was. And uh, <laughs> all those kids were pretty loony, too. Uh, anyway, in 1965, uh, I, uh, another guy, another school teacher and I, uh, well, he got the surfboard shop, and I loved to work in it. And I'm a surfer. I'm still a surfer. She called me Grammy, and she lies. I'm really magnificent. How would you know you're out here? <laughs> but I'm the, only, I'm the only one out there that can say, when a nice wave comes and all these kids are I'm the only one that can say, this one's for everybody over 59. <laughs> they all go. But I, I love to surf. I'm, I might say I'm obsessed with surfing. I, I dearly love it. I have another allergy, though, too. I have skin cancer. And so I can't go in the sun, and that makes it a little tough, see? So I just get up at dawn or just before dawn, and I get in the water, and I surf until the sun starts getting warm, then I get out and go home. See? Uh, I know how to control my surfing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with this, this allergy I have on the skin, uh, I've never had to call my sponsor and say, she's looking at me funny, I'm going to go out in the sun. <laughs> but then, sun never helped me dance either. <laughs> anyway... Uh, I, we had the surfboard shop down there, and we just had a one. Oh, we loved that place. You, that was an alcoholic's paradise. It really was. We were right down, sat right on the beach. Can you imagine? And uh, we've got the place. It was all beat up. A guy donated us the building, so we fixed it all up, put windows in it, and we got a refrigerator. <laughs> well, three months later, we got some surfboards. No big hurry. You know. uh, and we became sunsets connoisseurs. That's what I remember. Oh, we love sunsets. And uh, we used to measure them by martinis. You know, I'd say, looks like about a seven tonight, Woody. You know, the best one we ever had was a 15 martini sunset. It was glorious. You know? And the sun and Woody and I went right together. <laughs> they found us in those chaise lounges we had out there. We had sunburned mouths in the morning. Remember that? People who come down in the evening say, I'd like to rent a surfboard. Screw off, Charlie, we're watching the sunset. <laughs> Terrific businessmen. But in 1965, in February of 1965, it was in winter. We were both back teaching, and there wasn't any business in the shop. I just went down to the shop to fix a board. Now, I was not a morning drinker in 1965. I never had a morning drink in my life, so far as I remember. But anyway, I was working on this board, and I opened the refrigerator to see if there was a Coke or something in there. And Woody, my partner, had been there the night before. And he'd left about this much vodka in a half a pint. And there was some orange juice in the refrigerator. And I thought, hey, a screwdriver tastes good. So I mean, there was only enough for one. So I just mixed it up and drank it and went about my business. And I'm working in the shop. And in about 20 minutes, my mind talked to me. 
Did yours used to talk to you? Mine still talks to me, but I don't listen to it anymore. I have met the enemy. He lives in here. That's my enemy. Anyway, my mind said that morning, what a filthy trick. Finishing Woody's booze off like that. Why don't you go up and get him a pint? You know, just a hell of a guy, huh? Later, I got him a fifth. And I ended up just boreyed drunk. I mean, the resin all over me, the board was ruined forever, the shot was a mess, and I hadn't known what happened to me. I had no intention of getting drunk like that. And I never knew that I was powerless over alcohol. And then I started a five-year odyssey in and out of this program, and I never read the first step right in the next five years. I always read the first step, you're an alcoholic and your life is unmanageable. And that's not what it says. It says, I am powerless over alcohol. And I'm just as powerless over alcohol tonight as I was that if I drink it. Okay, but if I don't drink alcohol, I got all the power in the world over it with me, not with anybody else. I go in a liquor store every few days, pick up tobacco. I like to chew. I like to get in the liquor store because it's fresh, you know. And, and uh, I go in there and there's all these, not one of those bottles ever leaped off the shelf and forced me to the floor, you know. <laughs> the only thing that's come once in a while, there's a new brand come out and I go, hmm. <laughs> that's always interesting. I wonder what that would taste like. Uh, but I, you know, I just get my tobacco and go on my, or never let them put it in a sack, though. You know, you like that if you go in the liquor store? Guys, put it in a sack. No! You know, when I walk out, I always had the tobacco in my hand like this. Got some tobacco here. <laughs> I want one of you going by. <laughs> Paranoia, huh? But that day I got so drunk and so fouled up, and I went home and I thought, I told Pat, I said, my God, I'm getting drunk when I don't even mean to. Uh, I got to do something about my drinking. That's all there is to it. Now, everybody in the world had known I had a drinking problem for I don't know how long, but I thought I had one that day in February of 1965. And she had cut this little thing out of the paper about if you want to drink, it's your business. You, I don't know why she thought to do that. Anyway, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. The next day, a guy came out and took me to meetings. And I went to meetings for, oh, maybe two months. Usually, I went to the speaker meeting there in Oceanside on Sunday evening at 6.30. And uh, I went to a few uh, discussion meetings, but they hurt my feelings. Uh, <laughs> Well, see, my problem has never been alcoholism. Sensitivity, that's my problem. I'm just too sensitive. Artistically sensitive, you know. One time I had to have that removed surgically, you know, it's stuck there. Uh, I, well, I hate to tell this part, but this is my story, so I'm going to tell you. I, I thought AA was the most boring place I had ever been in my life. Uh, Laugh-In was the big show in, in 1965. And I used to sit in meetings, and I almost would have to strangle myself. To keep from, you know, I would just sit in the chair because I wanted to just jump up and say, boring. Remember that gal? <laughs> I just wanted to look at all of them and say, boring, boring. I never did. If I'd had a drink, I would have, but you know. <laughs> oh, dreary people. No sensitivity here at all. Sound like everybody's name was Clem, you know, and his wife's name was Martha. And uh, their stories were that they had been good, decent, worthwhile people their whole lives, but they had drunk too much. And they had drunk so long and had gotten away and they got all fouled up and so they went to AA and they took the golden steps and they went back to being good, decent, worthwhile people again. Uh, they had been rehabilitated. Now, my, my hero in, in 1965 was a guy named Eldridge Cleaver who was a black militant terrorist. <laughs> uh, well, that was my political philosophy at the time. Burn it down or blow it up, one of the two. You know? <laughs> Some things I, you know, the statute of limitations hasn't run out on everything. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'd gone down to hear Eldridge talk down in San Diego a few months before, and Eldridge was talking about the prison system in California. And he says about, they were always trying to rehabilitate him. And what they had never figured out was that he had never been habilitated. <laughs> See, now you can't rehabilitate somebody who has never been habilitated. <laughs> and that's how I felt here. See, I had never been okay. I don't know what your story is, but I never felt good about myself my whole life. 
I was unhappy long before I took a drink. I can remember little bits and snatches of my life when I was four years old. And when I was four years old, I was angry. And when I was four years old, I was afraid. And when I was four years old, I didn't like you. Because you had what I wanted. I wasn't sure what that was, but I didn't want what I had, and I didn't want to be where I was. I wanted to be someplace else, and I wanted to be somebody else, and I hated you. And that's how I lived my whole life before I drank and when I drank. So I just couldn't identify with people who had been rehabilitated because I had never been habilitated. And obviously you were not as sensitive as me, and so the hell with you. And so I thought, well, one day at a time, I don't have to drink. So I went back out, and I went another three months. One night I was having pizza and spaghetti and having a good time, and I thought a glass of wine can't hurt. She fainted, but it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> and uh, I had this glass of wine, and nothing happened, nothing. So then I knew you were phonies down here at AA. You know, you had led me to believe if I had a glass of wine that hair would grow in my face. I'd go, ooh, at the moon or some damn thing, you know. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, I'm teaching this millionaire how to surf. He invites me up to his millionaire condominium to have a millionaire drink with him, and nothing happened then either. A couple of weeks later, we were up in uh, Los Gatos, and a buddy of mine got out a fifth Irish whiskey, and I got drunk. And I was drunk then for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, that's a slip. <laughs> These phonies with their one day. You know, that's a real slip. And then I came, I started coming back to AA when the heat got on. I had found a place to hide out and to convince them all that I was going to do better. And I came to AA one time for 30 days and... Then I got drunk for another year or so, and then I came in for 40 days one time. I was drunk for another year or so. One time I came in in the afternoon, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's my favorite time. Uh, and there were three guys, four guys were at this old club there in Oceanside, and they quadro-stepped me. They got around me and just said, and I got the message. And I had this buddy John, big John, worse than I was. So I went over to John's house, and I knocked on the door, and John comes to the door. I said, John, we're alcoholics, and we have to go to AA. Big John said, Okay. <laughs> Give you an idea of where John was. So I took John to the meeting that night and became his sponsor. <laughs> and the next day, John and I both got drunk. <laughs> and that's how I treated Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, the drinking went on and got worse and worse and worse. Uh, I was a functioning alcoholic. That's how most, most alcoholics that are functioning alcoholics die sooner than others. It's been my experience. My old man, among the other lies he told me, was that if you, uh, if you get up and eat breakfast every morning and go to work, you're not an alcoholic. Now, he never said anything about throwing breakfast up, you know. <laughs> so I would eat breakfast and throw up and go to work every day, you know. And I am a go-getter, functioning. I got to do ten times more than you to prove I'm half as good. You know, and I couldn't be an alcoholic because look at all I'm doing. I'll tell you one more story. I don't want to get sober here. Uh, among other things I teach is speech. I love to save that and then watch them. You know? <laughs> he teaches. <laughs> yeah, speech. Anyway, the principal called me in one day uh, and said, Hey, Cliff, he said, they're having a debate and speech tournament down at San Diego State College. Why don't you go down there and see if that's something your kids would like to do? So I, he's the boss. I said, okay. And I found five or six rum-dums who were willing to give it a go. And we drove the 30 miles down to San Diego State College. And when we got there, we were amazed to find that these speech tournaments were big deals. You know, there were like 50 schools competing, like 500 contestants, all dressed as I am tonight or better. My kids were in Levi's. You know, we didn't know what that. We got slaughtered. I mean, we were annihilated. We, we didn't win around. Now, I don't, again, I don't know what kind of alcoholic you are, but... It, it ticks me off to lose. I'm a bad loser. I'm a worse winner, but I'm a bad loser. <laughs> and I was getting hostile. You know, and I went in the coach's room, and there were 15 or 20 of them in there, and they all knew each other, and I was the only one, you know, the odd man out. And they all snubbed me, it seemed to me. So I'm hung in there all day so they could snub me longer. You know the way we are? There was one guy there that really ticked me off. He, he had lots of that gray hair, one of those manes of gray hair. You can see I didn't like him right away. And, uh, 
And he had a, about a $400 suit on, and all the other coaches did this when they went in front of him. You know, he's kind of <laughs> kind of the guru of the speech coaches. And uh, in the afternoon, he finally turned to me for some reason, about 2 o'clock, and he said, to, where are you from? And I, grateful to be spoken to, <laughs> I said, Oceanside. He said, oh, where's that? <laughs> 30 miles down the... Oh, the man gave me a resentment, you know. And I went back to the high school. I went through the IQ files of the school. And I found smart kids, you know. And I stopped a kid in the hall. And I say, you're a debater. The kid said, I don't want to debate. I said, I didn't ask you that. Get your butt in the room. And they'd go. <laughs> they say, we don't have willpower. Ha, 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 And I'm there. Other teachers went home at 3. I'm there 9 o'clock at night, 9.30, sometimes 10 o'clock at night. I'm two or one or two kids in a room at a time, and I'm screaming and I'm cursing and I'm ranting and raving. I'm coaching! Some reporter one time asked one of my students, what's the secret of your coach's success? The kid said, terror. <laughs> he wasn't lying, you know. Do you have any idea how much work that is? To make 50 people do what they don't want to do? <laughs> Man, that makes you tense. <laughs> you got a drink when you do that. <laughs> Lucky for me, out in the car. <laughs> Never touched it all day. It'd be a half a pint of whatever thrifty had in the basket that week, you know. Sat there in the glove compartment of the car. Now, I'm the kind of drunk, I don't know what kind you are, but I don't have to drink all day. I only just have to know it. I'm going to drink when I get through here. That's even better, I think. You know? And that, that bottle just sit in the glove compartment say, Go get him, Cliff, baby. I'm waiting for you, darling. Now I'd finish with that last kid, and I'd go get in that car. And I'd uncork. I always smoked those big cigars in those days, those nickel ones. And I'd uncork that bottle of vodka. And I drank half of it, always, first thing. Just... And it would just slide down. Remember that thrifty, greasy vodka? It just would slide down there. And Clancy says, go Boom. And it made me well. I don't know what it did for you, but it saved my life. If it hadn't been for alcohol, they would have put me away 20 years before I got here. If it hadn't been for alcohol, I would have killed you, or you would have had to kill me. I saw a movie called A Scanners. When I got back late from the meeting in Los Angeles, I couldn't sleep. We'd got this HBO, so I turned this movie on. I thought, I'll lie on the couch here and relax. <laughs> this movie came on. These two guys are concentrating on each other, see? And the music's going, mm -hmm, you know, and these guys, the sweat's running on their face, and they go, mm -hmm. all of a sudden one guy's head blew off. <laughs> I didn't sleep for three days. <laughs> but, you know, when I got thinking about it, I thought, he should have drunk that guy, you know. <laughs> because that's, if I hadn't drunk, that's what would have happened to me, I'm sure. But uh, I had to have, and I'd get in that car, and then that booze would go down there, it would work, see. And I'd smoke that cigar, and I'd think, God, you're a terrific coach. <laughs> Working so hard for these kids. Smoke my cigar. Then I'd say, <laughs> and I'd finish that vodka and I'd go hide the bottle. I always hid the bottle. I guess I thought they were going to find it in the morning and fingerprint it or something. I don't know. <laughs> and then I'd finish that cigar. And while I sat and finished that cigar, I always thought about that gray haired sucker down in San Diego. <laughs> Never a day went by where I didn't think about him. <laughs> then I'd go home and get drunk. <laughs> And I'm a foul-mouthed drunk, and I'm a real violent drunk. Uh, and I'm a cruel, sarcastic, vicious drunk. And I, the last four or five years, I drank every night at home. And we had these five kids. And I turned that house into an insane asylum where everybody was crazy, and everybody in that house hated everybody else in that house. God knows I hated her. Not as much as she hated me. <laughs> and those three oldest kids, they were all in high school then. Like Pat said, Dave was working his way through high school as a hashish salesman. And, uh, and he was always seeing those peripheral lights, you know, and you'd be in the middle of a sentence, he'd say, what was that? I'd say, I don't know what was in there. But you never had to give that kid any spending money, you know. I used to hit him up for a fifth once in a while myself, you know. <laughs> what do you need, Dad? <laughs> And the drunken mother-in-law and all of us living there together, rattling around in that house. And uh, we were all crazy and enraged. But I built that speech team, 
And in a couple of years, we won one of those speech tournaments. But I didn't say anything to the gray-haired guy. It wasn't time yet. <laughs> we know when it's time, don't we? Huh? The next year, we won almost all the tournaments. But I can wait. I think revenge is better than Christmas, don't you? <laughs> the next year, there was a tournament at Palomar College there. There were 25 schools in the tournament. My team scored more sweepstakes points than the other 24 schools combined. Then I went up to that gray-haired son of a bitch. <laughs> and I put my nose right against his, and I said, Do you know where Oceanside is now? <laughs> uh. He just looked blank. He said, what are you talking about? I said, don't you remember about four years ago? <laughs> you said to me, Oceanside, where is that? And he said, we just moved here from Nebraska. I didn't know where it was. <laughs> I'm in the right place in Minnesota. I can see that. <laughs> A lot of drinkers like I drank. That's the story of my life. For four years, this guy had been down in San Diego in his bed every night. And I'm up in Oceans, I'll get you, you son of a... He didn't know it. He's just going through life, and I'm dying. And he never knew it. You know, and that's what my hostility and my anger will get for me today, too. It hasn't changed much. Uh... When I was new, uh, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. And we were driving to Los Angeles one night, and I got raving about the governor, and I spit all over my sponsor's windshield. He had to pull off the freeway to wipe <laughs> off the windshield. And he said maybe the most significant thing he ever said to me. He said, Cliff, you know the governor's not going to know it when you get drunk at him. <laughs> I have to remember that sometimes today, you know. <laughs> Anger, that's my number one defect of character. I don't know what yours is. Self-obsessed anger. They won't shape up for me. And it'll kill me just as well today as it would then. Anyway, right after that, uh, Pat and I had one of our main events that the neighbors have come to miss so much. And uh, I threatened again to move out, and she encouraged me for the first time in the year. So, you know, I ran the bluff, so I had to move. And... Uh, I was living down on the beach where I'd wanted to live anyway, and uh, had my surfboard down there, and I had said for years, if I could just unload that screwy woman and those dope fiend children, you know, I would be all right. And I wasn't all right. It was worse, you know, and I was going down the tubes, and I didn't know what the hell was happening to me. And I went by the house. I left school one day. hadn't had a drink yet. And I went by the house, and Pat and the three older kids were in the family room talking, and I was in there haranguing them about money or something, I guess. And uh, for some dumb reason, I turned to Dave, the hashy salesman, and uh, you should have seen him. He had hair down to his butt, you know, and the head went like this all the time. He looked like one of the dolls in the back of a car, you know. Called his mother, man, hey, man, what's for dinner? He was a beauty boy. <laughs> anyway, I turned to Dave and I said, this is a dumb question, I'll tell you, I found out. I said, Dave, what's it like not to have your old man around the house? And Dave looked me right in the eye and he said, it's beautiful. <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't aware I'm sensitive to. You know? And I went back to that dump on the beach and I ran and raved and I screamed and yelled and hollered. And I said something like, that woman has turned my children against me insanity. But I didn't take a drink that afternoon. For the first time in a long, long time, I didn't take a drink. And I went out and sat on the screen porch and I sat there and I watched the ocean. And I watched it all that afternoon and then there was a sunset, one of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen. And just about dark, I had what I assume you had or you wouldn't be in this room. I had that moment of clarity. I just saw me as David saw me. 
and I saw what I had become, and I didn't like it. And I had brought the book with me when I moved out. Isn't that funny? I had picked this book of Alcoholics Anonymous up when I, in my travels through AA and read it once, and being an English teacher, I thought it was poorly written. Uh, <laughs> but I want to tell you something. It read a hell of a lot better this time. And I started reading that book, and I called in sick, and I didn't go to work, and I read that book for three days. And I slept maybe two hours a day, and I read that book. I read it clear through once. All the stories went back. And on the third time through that book, I was on page 63. It was 3 o'clock in the morning on the 13th of January, 1970. And I came to that prayer, which is step three. And uh, for reasons unknown to myself at the time, I thought I would get down on my knees on that filthy linoleum floor on that dump in the beach. And if I would read that prayer out loud to myself, and that's what I did. I read, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I looked up the word bondage one time. It means slavery. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And insofar as I share my life with you, I have found happiness. Insofar as I can get out of the prison of myself long enough to love a newcomer and to care about what happens to him that day, life. Because a power came into my life that morning. And on, you know, most of the guys I know in the program and women I know in the program, uh, it's much more gradual. And much of my spiritual awakening has been very gradual. But I did have a charismatic kind of experience that morning. It was no, you know, no wind up my yin-yang like Bill Wilson or anything like that. Uh, I just knew I was going to be all right. I knew a power came into my life. And I was very fortunate that way, and I think God knew that, because he, he knew I had to have an immediate, some kind of a response, because I was too crazy. And I just knew I was going to be all right, and that, that has never left me since that day. You know, and that's going on 16 years ago. And uh, that power has never left me, even when I tried to lose it. Now, I don't know anything about God. Uh, and I, that doesn't bother me. Well, I know two things about God. Uh, my God has a sense of humor. He thinks I'm funny. <laughs> you know, ridiculously funny. He really gets a kick out of me, you know. When I'm on my horse sometimes, you know, when I'm really up there in a rage... And I'm screaming and ranting and raving, and I'm really somebody, and I'm telling people off. I swear, you know, in the universe, somebody hear them go. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I learned to laugh at myself. And that's the greatest gift God has ever given me, the ability to laugh at myself. See, I could always tell when you were a jerk. I can recognize you being a butt immediately. But I never could see it myself, and I never could laugh at myself. Because when it was with me, it was a big deal. And that's the greatest gift. The other thing I know about God is God is in this room. You know how I know that? Because I can see your eyes. I can't see everybody in this room's eyes, but I can see Jack and all you people down in front. See, I looked for God my whole life. I instinctively knew, I believe now, that I knew I was too sick for psychiatry. That I knew that only a spiritual answer could help a person like me. And when I look in your eyes, I know what's in my eyes. And that's a power, and it's called, I call him God. Now, you know, those of you who do 12-step work, you know what I mean. You know, you've, you've gone, like, as I have, to a dirty, filthy place and found a dirty, filthy man. And the first thing I always do when I get there is I get down and look in his eyes. And you know what I see? I see what my eyes looked like my whole life. Lack of power was my dilemma. You know, get the guy cleaned up, take him to a meeting, go to a coffee shop after the meeting, and then sometimes sit across the table from him, and that night, the power's in his eyes. Now, that's a miracle. There's more miracles in this room than in the lives of the saints. Everybody not drunk in this room is a miracle. I can't live without alcohol. I know that. And you can't either, I don't think. And that's why, you know, I used to shave for years, trying not to see my eyes. 
But I don't mind looking at my own eyes today because I see what I see looking back at me now. Now, if you're new, that sounds corny. I know. I heard somebody else apologize for being corny today. Because when I got here, I was slick. Man, I walked slick. I, I laughed slick. Remember how you laughed when you were slick? <laughs> That's the only way I laughed in the last five years before I sobered. <laughs> I was sober three days, and I went, Ha ha! What was that? You know, scared the hell out of me, you know. But that power and I have come a long way together. But that night I knew what I had to do. I had to go over to this guy, Bill Blake's house. He doesn't mind me blowing his anonymity. He does that all the time. And I go knocking on Bill's door. I had met him in and out of the program. I really liked him, you know. He was crazy, but he seemed to be having a good time. And I knocked on the door, and Margie opened the door, his, his wife, Margie. I've never seen anybody so glad to see me in my whole life. Now, I've been a five-year loser, an obnoxious, arrogant loser at that. You probably guessed. Uh, Margie saw me. She said, oh, Cliff, oh, this is wonderful. In the house I went, you know, forced me a cup of coffee. She said, she says, Bill's been in such a bag lately, I didn't know what to do with him. He's been crazy. He's had nobody to work with. This is so nice. <laughs> and Bill comes home about 10 minutes later and says, God damn, Cliff, oh, boy. In about a half an hour, I'm thinking, Anything else I can do to help you folks out? <laughs> Be glad to help any way I can. Yeah. And that's the way they made me feel, you know. Cliff's here. We can start AA now. <laughs> and uh, nobody's ever have to explain to me about this being a selfish program. You know? I found out the night I got here, they were glad for me. They'd been praying for me for five years. But they were more glad for themselves because they know the secret. The secret is you can't have it unless you're willing to give it away. And the more you try to give it away, the better it gets. Did you ever try to repay AA? My God, I'm going to go out and pay AA back today. And I go do something for AA, and so much comes back to me, I'm farther in the hole. <laughs> oh, it's trying to get <laughs> You cannot do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't think. Now, I didn't learn this right away. You'll probably be surprised to know that I was Looney Tunes when I got here. I had at least 11 nervous breakdowns a week. It took my sponsor a year and a half to teach me the most valuable lesson here. And he never told me. He only demonstrated it to me. Oh, now, I want to tell you, the next night after that first night, the guy had a blood transfusion from Attila the Hun and became the most vicious man I've ever known. The cruelest, nastiest little man. Well, Pat told you what he said to me when I told him about my degrees. He says, a thermometer has degrees. You always know, stick that sometimes, don't you? Uh, the nicest thing he ever said to me was, shut up. The third day, I had the whips, boys. Go, whoosh, whoosh, you know, your arms fly. Remember, knock people's coffee over. <laughs> he has this big Lincoln Continental. That impressed me. We're going down the freeway. You know, air-conditioned, quiet, peaceful. <laughs> Go for me. <laughs> Remember the guy back? He said, you didn't have to go. <laughs> but we're going along in this car. Mm -hmm. you know. He gets right beside a big semi. He has electric windows, and he opens the window by me. <laughs> oh. I hit the ceiling about seven times. You know. He says, love to watch those newcomers jump. <laughs> That's the way he treated me. And I believe in that. I believe in cruelty to newcomers forever. Anybody asks me to sponsor them, they know what they're going to get. Cruelty! But, you know, I would be having this... She would say something cruel. I'll tell you one thing she said to me when I was new. She said one time, she said, You used to be a drunken, no-good son of a bitch. Now you're just a no-good son of a bitch. <laughs> and that, that gave me a heart attack. Now, you know, I went over to Bill's... <laughs> He could have waited, goddammit. <laughs> I could have waited anyway. <laughs> Who was I talking about? <laughs> anyway, this guy, he just... But he took me to meetings everywhere. He took me all over Southern California. 
I mean, this guy would let me out at night, and he would say, I'll pick you up at 5.30. That meant we're going to Los Angeles. That's 100 miles away. Next time he'd say, I'll pick you up at quarter to seven. Oh, San Diego, that's closer anyway. Once in a while he'd say, I'll pick you up at quarter to eight. I'd say, oh, local meeting. <laughs> One time he said, I'll pick you up at six o'clock. I had a road map out all day. I was saying, where the hell are we going? <laughs> we went to a little town called Hemet over inland. It was a wonderful meeting. He took me to happy meetings. He took me to laughter meetings. He took me to meetings where people were kissing and hugging and needling each other and laughing and scratching and that kind of thing. He took me to about four great tunnel meetings so I'd know what they were like. So I could avoid him. I, did you ever hear about it? Clancy talks about gray tunnel means. The first time he, I heard him talk about it, I, I just fell right out of my chair. He said, the gray tunnel means where these six guys sit around a table every week and stay sober. <laughs> and, you know, a bare lamp bulb hangs down from above with fly specks on it. And sobriety's like a long gray tunnel, and you just trudge that sucker. <laughs> And every year, a trap door opens and a cake comes down. <laughs> That's Clancy's story, but boy, I, I've been to a couple of those. But that's not for me. See, I've, if you're new here tonight, I hope there's some new people here tonight. I've had more fun the last two weeks than the last five years I drank. I've laughed harder and more often from the belly this weekend than I did the last five years I drank. I've had more human warmth, more love, more sharing, more kidding, more, you know. It'll never, never fail to blow my mind to get off an airplane and have two friends waiting for me that I never saw before, you know. And Dennis and Sharon picked it up the other day, and it's instant friendship. It's never failed. I've never had anybody meet me or gone anyplace in an A where I met people I didn't like. I meet people just like me, you know, crazy people. <laughs> and the fun in the laughter, and I see so many people who come to great tunnel meetings and go out and get drunk before they know what's here. You know, what a way to live. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. When I was pretty new, Bill took me up to hear Clancy talk, and that night Clancy talked about the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he made fun of them. He said, dumb, simple little things they are. You know, they're really moronic. They're so simple, he said. He took each step and made fun of it. It was a riot. He said the only thing was for nine years he'd made fun of those steps that way, and he had been drunk for nine years. But for 12 years at that time, he'd been working those dumb, stupid, <laughs> simple little steps, and he'd been sober for 12 years. And it was, I say, a funny talk, and I laughed hard, but all the time he was talking, I was thinking, that's your problem, Cliff. You thought you were too smart for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why you almost died. And then three nights later, Bill and I were coming back from the men's stag meeting in Laguna Beach, where they hurt my feelings again. <laughs> oh, they loved me. They said, bring him back next week. Because <laughs> I was a whiner, you know. <laughs> I never learned. You know, on the way home, I told Bill for the seventh time that night about how sensitive I am. Remember I told you? And the seventh time I told him I should have noticed knowing his knuckles were white on the wheel, you know, and his jawbone was going... Bloo, 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 bloo. <laughs> and he turned to me very quietly. He said, let's get this straight, Cliff. You are not sensitive. You are an immature son of a bitch. <laughs> I told him I kind of prefer sensitive. It's all the same to you. But <laughs> no. But uh, he's never been more right than he was then. You know? And uh, the other thing he taught me, uh, I used to go to him crying... And in a nervous breakdown, and he would say, go get Al and take him to the meeting. You know, I'd come up to him and say, Bill, I'm having a nervous breakdown. He would say, go get Al and take him to the meeting. That's like asking a guy, what time is it? He'd say, the horse is dead. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't match. It doesn't make sense. So I'd go get Al. Al was a bigger jerk than me and a worse slipper, and I'd listen to Al's BS all the way to the meeting, and all the way home, and I'd take Al home, and I'd feel better. <laughs> or I'd go the next night and say, blah, blah, that woman, blah, 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 and he'd say, go make the coffee. And this went on for a year and a half. Finally, one day, I called him, and I went over to his house, and I said, you know what, Bill, what I've discovered? 
what? <laughs> I said, I've discovered it doesn't matter how I feel to the program of alcohol. And it doesn't matter what I think, and especially it doesn't matter what I think. The only thing that matters here is what I do. He said, you got that right. <laughs> and that's how I found out about the, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new, I got great news for you. I've been through this book I don't know how many times, hundreds of times. And I've never found in this book anywhere it says you have to do anything cheerfully. <laughs> That's good news, boy. You can piss and moan and gripe as you dirty old, you know, as long as you do it. It doesn't matter. Uh, I never knew that a sick nut like me could learn to live in the world comfortably. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous was designed for, I believe, by a loving God through Bill Wilson and the early pioneers. I believe that this program is divinely inspired. I believe any man in the world can find God when he wants to find him enough, when he's willing to surrender and ask for help. But I believe that God, through Bill Wilson and the early pioneers, created this program for people like me because it's never failed me and it always just has worked out perfectly. Uh, I'm a miracle. No, I'm not just a miracle because I don't drink. Now listen, that's a miracle. I couldn't stay three days, sober three days when I took antabuse. I used to take antabuse and drink three days later always. Now, I turned funny colors. You could find your way to the bathroom. My ears glowed, so, you know, but I drank anyway. No, and I've been sober over 15 and a half years. That's a miracle. But that's not the miracle. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is, I don't want to drink. The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is, I get up in the morning, most mornings, glad to be Cliff. I go through my day, most days of my life, reasonably serene. No, not compared to an Al-Anon, maybe, but reasonably <laughs> serene for a sick nut like me. If you're new, plug your ears. Sometimes I live joyfully. <laughs> Sometimes I'll go for like two weeks with my heart just singing, just glad to be alive, full of joy. I, I find a way to screw that up always, you know. But the fact that I have it, that's what's a miracle. Uh, three of our kids, as Pat mentioned in the morning, are probably in training for this program now. Some of them are doing very well. Uh, you know, they have all the complications, all the no snow and all that stuff, and uh, marijuana and all that business. But I want to tell you, all our kids love us today, and, all, and we love all our kids. And we talk to our kids, and we, you know, we don't, I'm not, it's not contingent. They, they don't have to be sober for me to love them. And I don't have to be a swell guy for them to love me. They love the program, they love us, and they love us in it. They just don't think they're ready for it yet. <laughs> One guy has a driving problem. If he could find Drivers Anonymous, he'd be all right. It ain't the drinking. It's the goddamn driving. It's driving. <laughs> they're arresting him for the driving, not the drinking. But, you know, they're all, they're all wonderful, functioning, good people. On my fourth AA birthday, Dave, the hashy salesman, he told Big Keith Carpenter, my dad has shown me how to live. And that's the nicest thing anybody ever said on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous about me. What my son said is, I am an example to him. You know, a lot of times I'm a bad example, but sometimes I'm a good one too. And that's all I'll ever be, and that's all you'll ever be, is an example of the power in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, he went from a university in the state of California, and he served two years in the Peace Corps. And he came back and got a master's degree, and he had, had a fine job. Uh, for the last few years. He was an agriculture major. We don't ask him what he grows. It's none of my... <laughs> none of our goddamn business. <laughs> but he, uh, he was a big shot agriculturist down in Mexico, and a couple of Christmases ago, he flew his mom and I down there, you know, and just took us around, you know, in the best hotels and took us out to dinner and just treated us like the king and queen of England, for God's sake. And in the airport when we were leaving, you know, that 31-year-old man put his arms around me, you know, and hugged me and said that he loved me. Now, you could call that a fringe benefit, I guess. 
I think it's a miracle. See, I think it's my God in action in my life. I never had it so good. I'm glad for every drink I ever took. I'm glad for every rotten thing I ever did. I'm glad for every bartender I bit in the face. Because <laughs> it got me to you. And you've given me a life that I never thought possible for a person like me. I'm Cliff Roach and I'm an alcoholic and that means I can never drink again as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> but it also means I'm an immature son of a bitch. <laughs> and I need the steps and the sponsor and the people and the meetings of this program to decrease that level of immaturity one day at a time, a little bit at a time, so that I can learn to live comfortably in the world and sometimes joyfully. But when I say I'm Cliff Roach and I'm an alcoholic, I mean this. This is the real meaning to me. I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm proud of that. That's the best thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. I belong to you and you belong to me. I have to read these sociologists in my work. Oh, I love those guys. They're so weird. You know, their favorite word is alienation. They always italicize it. Alienation. They say that's what's wrong with Western civilization. That there's no sense of community anymore in Western civilization. There's no place where people fit and belong and where they love each other. And every time I read one of those clowns, I always think, why don't you drink a little more? <laughs> you drink as much as I drank, you find a place, see? I'm up in Minnesota. And I belong in this room. See, it isn't important whether you think I do or not. I belong here. And I belong everywhere, and I go in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love you unconditionally, because I have to, now because I want to. And I know you love me the same way. And I don't know if my nonsense did anybody any good. That isn't why I came here. I came here to save this. I don't know if there's anybody in this room who needs me. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. I sure as hell need you.